on air, online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Hello, it's so nice to be with you today. Hopefully, you're getting a little bit of sunshine. Today, we're going to delve into the story about the flower grower who accidentally grew restricted poppies. We'll also visit an East Coast venue where helicopters are the latest tool in the toolbox. This is the second time this year. We just um, keep getting follow-up rain after follow-up rain. Uh, We just can't get the tractors on everywhere. Uh, We didn't have to do everything, but um, there's some lakes in the middle of the vineyard out there that would just make a big mess if we sent the tractors in. And we look at how a salmon producer is coping with rising water temperatures. We do have um, enough milt in our sperm bank currently to fertilise 3.8 million eggs. You've got 3.8 million eggs worth of sperm in a bank. And it's only (laughs) going to go up, yeah. And this is all part of their strategy to deal with warming waters. Lots of variety on the show today. But first, we'll revisit that intriguing story that you may have heard on mornings a little earlier this week. A local commercial cut flower grower got into a bit of hot water when she was found to be growing a type of poppy that's restricted in Tasmania. Kate Dixon had planted a couple of varieties that had beautiful pink blooms, which she'd been selling to florists for weddings, etc. Little did she know that she was growing flowers that possess the alkaloids, thebane and morphine, important ingredients in pain medication. There's big restrictions on growing those type of poppies. So I went down to see Kate Dixon and her poppies, but there was a big bare patch in the garden when I arrived. So I had some really beautiful poppies, nice and tall, pink, frilly, gorgeous flower heads. And I had an unexpected call from Depiwi last week saying that they'd seen some of my photos on Instagram and thought and suspected that they were restricted poppies, um, that you need a licence to grow in Tasmania. So, yeah, that was a bit of shock because I had no idea. (laughs) What a surprise. So, obviously, you hadn't intended to plant those sort of poppies. No, I didn't. So, I was growing them purely for the wedding events um, and I had absolutely no idea. They were seeds that I sourced, um, you know, from an Australian seed supplier. So, I I thought that they were okay. Um, I guess it's probably a really good reminder before you plant anything to always check and check with the botanical names. How can you check? Well, that's a good question because after I got the initial um, contact from Depiwi, I did have a look on their website and I couldn't find the information easily. But they do have, pertaining to poppies specifically, a a Know Your Poppies fact sheet, um, which has some pictures on it. But again, I think it could be made a little bit easier to find. Were you surprised that uh, you managed to buy these poppies? I mean, was there any suggestion that the seeds should be restricted? No, none. And I did have another variety of poppy growing here, which the seed packet's botanical name was Poppy Oriental, uh, and they are okay to grow. But when the guys from Depiwi came last week and took some plant samples to UTAS for testing to confirm exactly what they were, the oriental poppy was actually, in fact, a poppy, a different poppy 
and it's one of the restricted ones as well. So that's been removed too. So it wasn't Oriental? It wasn't an Oriental, no, but sold as an Oriental. Oh my goodness. Do you think uh, others may have fallen into this trap? Yes, I do actually. I think, um, well, I've seen a lot of these poppies in backyards and they're a cottage garden favourite. So yeah, I think there's probably quite a few around. Were you surprised, one, that you got the call and two, that they came around and pulled them out? Uh, I was surprised um, because I actually had no idea that poppies or certain poppies were restricted. Yeah, I mean, I was very surprised and that they did move very swiftly. But given what I know now and how, you know, I've spoken with Depiwi and they've talked uh, to me about why they're restricted and the dangers involved in ingesting these type of poppies, I think it's a very good thing that they did do that. Okay, so these were poppies that are used by the poppy industry to produce thebane and opium Correct. for the drug in industry. Exactly. That's exactly right. So it's a very, very tightly held restricted crop. And yeah, I mean, I guess in the wrong hands with the wrong intention, that'd be really dangerous. So how do you feel after all this? Well, I'm really relieved it happened now and not next year because I was planning on doing another two rows. So I'm glad it saved me from all that work to have it ripped out. <laughs> Do you think there's an issue here about education or perhaps about being able to buy these seeds? Yeah, I do. I think, look, I think when people are educated, then, then they probably wouldn't be looking to grow these sort of poppies. But I also think there is a natural assumption. I made this assumption that if the seeds are available in stores, readily available, easy to buy, then people just naturally assume that it's okay to grow them. Um, so I think probably what really needs to happen is that seeds, poppy seeds in particular, need maybe some random screening and random testing to actually see that what is in the packet what's, is actually what's labelled. At the store. Correct. Yeah. What's going to happen with you now? You've had the poppies taken, is that it? I hope that's it. Um, the lovely guys yesterday who came to take the poppies said that I'll be getting a formal letter notifying me of the testing results and I'm hoping that that's all that's the, that, that is contained in the letter. I hope there's no fines or anything, but yeah, I hope that that's it. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, and it looks like Kate Dixon was actually found or discovered when she put some um, beautiful pics of her poppies and her garden up on Instagram. She's got a nice little Instagram page and uh, someone saw them and thought, oh, dobbed her in, I suppose. Um, but Kate has a lovely garden, even without those offending poppies. And uh, we have contacted the Department of Natural Resources and Environment, formerly Depipwe. They didn't have anyone that could talk to us, but there's a bit of a statement here. They've confirmed that an officer from the department's regulated crop section removed 50 plants, 50 of those beautiful plants with beautiful flowers from Kate Dixon's garden. They were removed on Tuesday and the University of Tasmania has confirmed that the plants were of prohibited species. Now bear with me, the names were Pap Papaverse Somniferum and Papaver Bracteetum. Bracteetum. There you go. Uh, the statement says that the department appreciates the assistance of the property owner 
Where prohibited poppies have been found in a garden setting in the first place, their preferred approach is generally education, awareness, and to engage with the owner. So that suggests to me she's probably not going to get a fine or charge with anything. Uh, They reiterate that poppy varieties that contain various alkaloid components are prohibited. They're a prohibited plant under the Tasmanian Poisons Act of 1971 because they're toxic. And it is an offence to grow or possess them without a licence in Tassie. Um, Some other ornamental poppies can be grown and possessed in Tasmania. If you're a little bit unsure... There is a fact sheet which you can look for on uh, NRE's website, a poppy fact sheet. I found it by going Google poppies fact sheet Tasmania. That's probably the easiest thing. Um, And they are, the Department of uh, NRE are also looking at making further inquiries about the seeds themselves. So we'll see what happens there. That's a a really fascinating story because, you know, some other people may have been caught up uh, without realising it. Mornings with Mel Bush. I noticed that the Collins Dictionary word of the year is a, unfortunately, a pessimistic term, permacrisis, <laughs> uh, which is an extended period of instability and it's the last thing we need. But anyway, keep your eyes and ears peeled for that one. Keeping you entertained and informed. So, uh, I like that anyway, dog you. Look out for a permacrisis, won't you? I'm having one. <laughs> Mel Bush, weekday mornings from 8.30 on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And are you growing poppies? Have you checked whether they're the right ones? Send us a text 0438 922 936. Send us a text and let us know. Uh, whether you're growing poppies and do you know whether they're the right ones. The ones that uh, Kate was growing were a hot pink sort of colour. Uh, We're going to have a digital article up about that shortly. So that'll be on the ABC Rural website. Now, if you need to spray for weeds and bugs on a vineyard, waiting for a good weather window can be tough because you can't do it in wind or rain. In fact, you can't do it anywhere in wind or rain and there's been plenty of that but there's also been wet muddy ground tractors with sprayers can't even get down the roads without get rows without getting bogged i popped in to see tim Lyon from springvale vineyard on tasmania's east coast who was resorting to some desperate measures getting a helicopter to help with much needed protector and spraying um, I started by getting up at five and Tasmanian helicopters to um, do some aerial spraying on our vineyard. Is it normal? No, the first time we've ever had to do it. Um, this is the second time this year. We just um, keep getting follow-up rain after follow-up rain. Uh, we just can't get the tractors on everywhere. Uh, we didn't have to do everything, but um, there's some lakes in the middle of the vineyard out there that would just make a big mess if we sent the tractors in. That's incredible uh, here on the East Coast that you need to do that. Yeah, we're usually uh, dry. It's usually the sunny East Coast, but um, I think the last two years it hasn't been uh, that sunny and definitely hasn't been very warm. I don't know, last week it felt like it was uh, back to normal, but we're back to cold again this week, so who knows. What were you worried about that made you spray? Was it just normal? 
Uh, well, we, we haven't been able to get the tractors on, so we haven't been able to do any protectant sprays, so just for powdery and downy mildew. Um, and the new shoots coming, if, uh, if it were to get into the new shoots, especially the downy mildew, it could have been fairly devastating. So I just want to make sure they're protected until we can get back in with the tractors. Will that be the last that you need to do with aerial spraying? I think so. They only, they only spray at um, 100 litres a hectare, so it's very small volume and really only targeting those, those shoots on top. So what, the bigger they get, the more we have to start looking at the fruit itself and that's where our, our sprayers are much more efficient. And so effective. hopefully you can get the tractors in there soon. Yeah, yeah next week it'd be nice. <laughs> How many hectares do you have now? And, and just remind us your range of grapes that you've got in or vines you've got in. Yeah, we've got uh, 31.6 hectares. And so we do two styles of sparkling, uh, Gewurz Tremina, uh, Pinot Gris, Sav Blanc, two different styles of Chardonnay, um, a Rosé and uh, two levels, uh, sorry, three levels of Pinot and then we do a, a cellar release version as well. And in terms of your plantings, have you been planting anything new or is it steady as she goes? Uh, at this stage it's steady as she goes. We still have to um, build a couple, like the Pinot Gris and Rosé are very strong uh, in terms of growth on the mainland and also our early drinking Pinot so it's just sticking to with what we know at this stage but oh, it is on the radar. One day. One, one day to put a few more more vines in? I think so. It's not something that Dad wants to entertain at all, but uh, I think um, we just need to consolidate. We, our last planting was 2018, so we just want to consolidate that for a little while and then um, there's a few other blocks I've got my eye on. <laughs> OK. When Dad's not looking, maybe when Dad's on holiday or something. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. You know, he's... Uh, He's doing a good job of um, keeping the place looking pretty at the moment. So when he's when he's away next time, we might start uh, doing some planning. Everyone's talking about uh, demand for Tasmanian wines. You're, you're finding the same strong demand. Absolutely, yeah. We um, feels like we've been growing for a long time, and well, we have really since 1986. If we can consolidate this last stage, it will. I'd, I'd still feel we won't have an issue selling at all. So. Um, yeah, it's a very good position to be in. And how do you market your Springvale? Are you a sort of cellar door and in the bottle shops, etc.? Did you develop online more during COVID? Uh, we definitely did pivot a little bit towards online, but um, because Tassie wasn't shut down like the rest of the country, um, the cellar door was very strong. Our range also is very strong in retail, so that in fact picked up a little bit. It's that restaurant trade that got affected the most. So having a good range and a good spread of price points and understanding where they are, yeah, we're able to, to get through. OK. How are the vines actually looking at the moment? I'm pretty optimistic after the last two years, which has been pretty poor in terms of um, just cold growing seasons. Um, but it looks like the fruit is there, but we can't really uh, be too confident until we get through December where we we have flowering and fruit set that's that's the big one for us next time if we get cold and wet then we might be down another 50 percent well a lot of the vineyards have been down the last couple of years so those seasons affected Springvale as well oh definitely we just haven't had the stock um but you know things like uh, estate ranges where that are in barrel for nine months or more their, their stock's still in the sheds so you're not generally selling those um straight away so we're 
we're starting to work through some back vintages, but we um, we do need to put a couple of good ones in pretty soon. Okay, handy that you're quite a developed uh, vineyard and, and have those back vintages, unlike some others. Yeah, it is, it is, and we've built up that market um, back when we started in, well, first vintage was 1990. Uh, we didn't have a very big cellar door market at all. We weren't close enough to either Launceston or Hobart, so Dad was able to establish us on the mainland in the early 90s, which is why we're so well known over there. Um, and seems that it, our product just keeps on moving really well. So, This property, Springvale, is it just the vineyards or are there other parts of the property in terms of agriculture? It's quite small, so uh, we now just lease um, the remaining area other than the vineyard um, to our neighbour um, to run his sheep, just so we can focus on the vines, really. How long has the property been in the family? Uh, 1875, so I'm 5th. Um, generation here. So dad did a lot of irrigation infrastructure and then many different crops came from that and grapes were basically a diversification and before then it was um, sheep. How did you go in the drought period? Have you since put in more irrigation or had your dad set it up well? I did set it up well um, definitely it was more about access to water. The river system here is feast or famine so you have to be able to take um, your allocation probably quicker than others might need to and definitely have a dam so you've got that storage capability and then the um, Tasmanian irrigation scheme came in it must be four years ago now so that gave us a little bit more protection as well for when the next drought does come along. (laughs) And that was Tim Lyon from uh, Springvale Vineyard chatting there about his East Coast Vineyard and it was so nice popping into a few vineyards up the coast uh, late last week. Still on grapes and vineyards, there's moves to make sure your favourite Australian wines will be kept safe from catastrophic events. There's a plan to securely store samples of the country's most important grape varieties. Megan Hughes has the story. In Queensland's Granite Belt, like a lot of the country, this grape growing season has been a wet one. And as Ballandina State Wines' Leanne Puglisi-Gangemi explains, more rain can equal more problems. So disease is always an issue when it's a wet season. So it started off quite wet. So we have most of the vineyards in the region, well, I should say all of us are in protection mode at the moment. So uh, prevention is better than cure as far as diseases go. So when it's a little bit wet, yes, it it costs us a, a bit more to grow the grapes because we're constantly trying to avert any issues we have with diseases and pests. Growers from Queensland to South Australia are struggling through this season with not only pest and disease pressures, but another year without their major China export market. It's hoped this new national grapevine collection will protect growers from future industry-threatening events. While not under 130 metres of permafrost, this plan is a similar concept to the Doomsday Vault. 25 of Australia's most valuable varieties and their clones kept in a high-security lab. As collection coordinator Nick Dry explains. We're looking to develop a what's called a vine integrity collection. So that's a, a much smaller collection uh, held in slow growth tissue culture. So if you can imagine little grapevines in test tubes inside a lab, 
Uh, and so that the beauty of that collection is it's it's safe from you know catastrophic environmental conditions, but also uh, any pests uh, and diseases. So that's going to be initially 25 of our most important cultivars. The Vine Integrity Collection will be a you know a, a completely um, a startup collection sitting in slow growth tissue culture uh, in inside the lab. Does that lab exist? Like, where will it be? Well, at this point in time, there's three or four different options that we're looking at. So we haven't made any absolute decisions on on where that, or actually we're going to duplicate those collections. So there'll be actually two labs that we use, uh, to, again, to spread risk. We're looking to, to leverage existing assets. The National Grapevine Collection, or NGC project, is being funded by Wine Australia with supporting kind from other industry stakeholders. Under the plan, existing collections of grapevine varieties, clones and rootstocks will be coordinated as part of it, with the idea to support them with increased funding to raise the level of security, protecting them into the future. Mr Dry again. So the nuclear collections is where we access cuttings to um, develop new source blocks, and those source blocks, as I was saying before, is where we actually collect the cuttings for commercial, um, commercial propagation. We also have germplasm collections which is they're much more diverse so they'll, they'll have you know varieties in there that, that aren't necessarily used commercially that we're just holding uh, I guess for, for the future for future use perhaps or for breeding uh, so they're, yeah, they're, they're genetically diverse they may have a, a range of, of uh, a health status in terms of virus and as I said they're, they're, they're not something that you, you would go to regularly but yeah that's where we keep the, the broader stocks. The wine industry contributes 40 billion dollars to the Australian economy each year and this national collection is hoped it'll protect its greatest assets. With vines taking five to ten years to produce quality grapes, growers plan for generations not just seasons. Barossa-based vigneron and Australian Grape and Wine board member Adrian Hoffman says for this reason, it's important to future-proof the industry. I'm a generational grape grower, so I'm not just looking at you know what, what's happening currently on my property and, and making you know five-year plans and 10-year plans. I, I'm, a, I'm making sort of 20-year plans, 30, 50-year plans as well and looking at the next generation. You know, I'm a current custodian of, of the land that I've got and I want to hand it on to the next generation in better nick and I, I think that's the charter of a lot of a lot of people that have got their property they want to they want to build up the property they want to build up their asset whether that's to pass on to the next generation or whether to sell so for me it's all about having i suppose the right right material the right um vines in the ground and an alliance of food producers and distributors has taken to parliament house in canberra today calling for a national food security plan. The National Food Supply Chain Alliance represents convenience store operators, farmers, meat workers, independent retailers, hospitality workers, warehouse and transport operators. Its spokesman Richard Forbes. We're here to talk about what we consider to be the most important issue facing Australians at the moment and that's increasing food prices and the impact that that's having on households. 80% of Australians are concerned about rising food prices. Uh, food Bank's Hunger Report 2022, three weeks ago, said that 2 million Australians are struggling to put food on the table and that includes 1.3 million children in Australia are food insecure. What we're facing is quite unprecedented in that we have multiple long-term threats to the food supply chain. The two long-term threats that are go aren't going anywhere are really severe weather events 
We've seen 11 catastrophic weather events in the last three years. We have 170,000 workers that we need in the supply chain that we don't have. So we are short 170,000 workers. So no pickers for fruit and vegetables, no truck drivers to distribute uh, food. So that's not going anywhere uh, as well. So it's quite unprecedented. In order to try and stabilise rising food prices, what we're calling for is quite unheard of, but we need it because of changing times, and that is the establishment of a national food security plan where we look at all the disruptors, we bring them together under one strategy. We've never had a food plan. We have a renewable energy plan. We have an education plan. We don't have a national food plan. Unless we have a national food supply chain strategy, food prices will continue to increase. We believe 6 to 7% next year, putting more pressure on Australian families, and this could last even longer because we know that these severe weather events are going nowhere. The State of the Climate report came out today. They're talking about longer droughts, longer heat waves, uh, more fire days and heavier rainfall events. So we're here to, and we've been meeting with government and opposition, calling on them from industry to support the establishment of a national food security plan. In our view, that's the only way that we can help stabilise food prices and reduce the food shortages that you've been seeing on your shelves. And that was Richard Forbes uh, speaking on behalf of the National Food Supply Chain Alliance. Time now for the ABC headlines with Early Ward. Thanks, Fiona. Premier Jeremy Rockliffe has accepted there's growing pressure on the health system due to COVID, with claims a woman died while rammed this week. As COVID spreads again, the Royal Hobart Hospital's escalation plan has moved to level two. The Greens claim a woman died while rammed at the hospital this week and that the state has no system of recording deaths. The Premier says the government has plans to improve staffing but that more federal support is needed. New South Wales police say they've broken up a major drug network operating over several continents to smuggle drugs into Australia. Detective Superintendent Peter Foe says officers seized more than $300 million worth of methamphetamine and cocaine during the 18-month-long investigation. Western Australia's tourism boss will meet with state government officials today to discuss the benefits of a Hobart stadium. Evan Hall was a supporter of Perth's 65,000 capacity, $1.5 billion Burswood Stadium that opened in 2018. And summer's just days away and the Bureau of Meteorology's official outlook suggests it's set to be a season of contrast, dry in the west and wet in the east. For Bulletin at One. Thanks, Ellie. Time now to switch to the Weather Bureau. Michael Conway, good afternoon. G'day. Now, have we had much rainfall about? We've had a, a little bit yesterday, so and mainly into the west, into the central west mainly. Lake Margaret had 25 millimetres, Zeeen 16, and Strathgordon had 11 millimetres. Okay. What about the outlook? What are we looking at? Yeah, so today a, um, a, a weak trough is very weak troughs moving up the east coast and that may um, bring a few showers back into the northeast as well as the showers in the west. We've got a westerly stream at the moment. Tomorrow uh, the, a 
very weak cold front will move over, but it's, it's, I must emphasise very weak. It's not going to be much weather except for a few showers around the state and especially into the west. On Saturday, it's going to be quite warm as warm air drops down from um, the continent, but um, that'll bring temperatures up into the low 20s and uh, we get a trough coming over at night. So showers will extend from the northwest late Saturday and then we get a cold front on Sunday. Again, quite weak and snow level only dropping down around 1,000 metres. So uh, not a lot... Of, not much um, snow with that one, but it will bring showers statewide um, on Sunday, as well as statewide showers on Saturday, but only light showers, uh, most of the state, a bit heavier in the west. All right. Are there any warnings? There is some, a strong wind warning out um, currently from um, Stanley to St Helens Point, including Bank Strait and Franklin Sound, and then for eastern and southern waters from southern waters from Wineglass Bay round to Low Rocky Point. And then tomorrow is just for the central north and east of Flinders Island. All right. And the coastal waters? Yeah, so currently the Wave Rider boys at Cape Sorrel, we've got uh, 3.5 metres. At Marat Island, it is 1.5 metres. The winds for today, we've got west to southwesterlies generally around the state at 20 to 30 knots. Uh, that's about the south, the lower east and the north. Um, 15 to 25 knots elsewhere, although it's going to be variable about 10 to 15 in the upper east. Tomorrow, the winds are west to southwesterlies at 15 to 25 knots. They'll be increasing to 20 to 30 knots, about the central north and northeast in the afternoon. And then uh, winds will ease throughout the, the west to about 10 knots in the evening. The swells around today uh, in the west and south, we've got a west to southwesterly swell at three to four metres. That'll be dropping to about two to three metres in the evening. Tomorrow, the two to three metres will swell will continue on. In the north, there's a westerly swell around one metre today. It'll be around 1.5 metres tomorrow. In the east, there's a south to southwesterly swell of one to two metres today. And, but it'll be uh, trending southwesterly, three to four metres offshore in the south. Tomorrow there's a south-southwesterly swell of around one metre, trending um, southwesterly two metres around the south. All right, Michael Conway, thanks very much. Thank you. Have a oh. Coast to coast. This is the Country Hour. You're with Fiona Breen on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. I thought we'd have a little bit more on the weather. Extreme weather events, including torrential downpours, searing heat and dangerous bushfire conditions, are all getting worse across Australia, with even more challenging events to come. That's according to the latest snapshot of the nation's climate from the bomb. The continent is now 1.47 degrees Celsius hotter than it was in 1910. And sea levels around the coastline are rising at an accelerating rate, according to the 2022 State of the Climate report. Blair Truen from the BOM is speaking with Kate Doyle. Australia is continuing to warm. Uh, we continue to see an increase in the frequency of uh, uh, days with extreme heat and the number of days of extreme uh, fire weather, uh, and sea levels are continuing to rise. Uh, there are you know, some things which are a little bit different this time. Obviously, we've uh, uh, you know, had the extremely wet conditions in the last two years in, air, in some areas, which have uh, you know, brought much more of a focus on what's happening with heavy rainfall. And uh, uh, the, the 
decline in Antarctic sea ice has become, become much more obvious over the last two years than it had been previously. But mostly it's uh, uh, you know, a continuation of the trends that we've been seeing for a while. Um, speaking of the variability that La Nina and El Nino bring to the table, um, how have our climate drivers been responding to the warming climate? Yeah, we know that uh, uh, El Nino and La Nina do very... Uh, a fair level of activity does vary uh, quite a lot over time. Uh, and uh, in recent decades, uh, uh, the level of activity uh, in those has been higher than it was in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, you know, both more significant El Ninos and more significant La Ninas. But it's, uh, uh, it's not clear that that's uh, you know, a long-term trend. Uh, we, uh, although the date is much more sparse, we do have uh, a reasonable level of evidence suggesting that uh, uh, the behaviour of El Nino and La Nina in the later part of the 19th century was not so different to what we've seen in the last 40 or 50 years. But uh, uh, what we do expect into the future is, uh, uh, you know, even if there isn't a significant change in the uh, frequency of El Nino and La Nina, uh, we do have a fairly high level of confidence that the rainfall extremes associated with El Nino and La Nina will get stronger. Uh, so more more intense rainfall with La Nina and more drought with El Nino. Speaking of intense rainfall, I do notice in the report that it's saying that there is a uh, rainfall decline in the southeast of Australia and increase in droughts and increase in fires. How can we have that and also have years like this year where it's just been rain, 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 Blair? Yeah, so you, uh, uh, yeah, so there's two aspects there. Firstly, what your long-term average rainfall uh, is, and secondly, uh, you know, how much variation you have from year to year. So, uh, uh, and you know, if you have a situation where you have uh, a decrease in the average on the one hand, but increasing uh, variability on the other, you can end up with a situation where you, uh, you know, have more extremes, but uh, but a lower average. Uh, what we see in Australia with heavy rainfall is quite complicated. We have pretty solid evidence that uh, the frequency of extreme rainfalls over really short periods, and you know, we're talking here of uh, you know, rainfall over intervals from an hour through to a few hours, we have a pretty high level of confidence for that's increasing. Longer time scales like daily and multiple days, uh, many parts of the world there is a clear increase in extremes uh, at that sort of time scale. Uh, it's not quite so clear in most of Australia outside of the north yet, and partly that's because uh, Australia has very highly variable rainfall by global standards, and because of that, um, it's, uh, you, need, you would need quite a big uh, actual trend to stand out from that, uh, uh, from that natural variation. So it doesn't necessarily mean that there has been no changes that so we can't confidently detect one yet at that daily or multi-day timescale. So you're telling me that even though it's rained a lot over the last few years, it hasn't been enough to turn around that trend of drying in the southeast? Um, no, it, it hasn't. It's uh, uh, you know, perhaps weakened us a little bit in the short term, uh, uh, although it's probably also worth noting there that uh, uh, the, uh, the drying trend in southern Australia is concentrated in the cooler part of the year, so uh, April through to October. Uh, now, this, you know, this year... Yeah, we have seen very heavy rain uh, in the later part of our cool season, August, you know, August through October and on into November. Uh, but uh, uh, 
you know, a lot of parade all extremes we've seen uh, uh, in recent years, leaving aside what's happened this year, a lot of the extremes we've seen in recent years have been in, in summer. So, uh, uh, yeah, and, uh, uh, yeah, we, in most of southern Australia, even though we see that downward trend in uh, winter rainfall, we mostly don't see a huge change in summer. Interesting. Although heavier in the north, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Northern Australia, we have a you know, it's a pretty clear-cut increase, particularly in Northern Territory and North WA, less so in Queensland. Uh, but there's, you know, in those regions, there's a pretty clear increase in uh, uh, in rainfall during the wet season uh, from the 1970s onwards. I guess, um, I guess the question is, everyone's going to be interested in if this kind of flooding is going to become more common. Yeah, well, we do, we do expect that, uh, uh, that over time. Uh, uh, rainfall extremes will increase, even in areas where average rainfall is decreasing. The, how much that increase is, uh, you know, depends on uh, how much global warming we see. It's uh, uh, much more obvious in models at two degrees of warming or more than it is at 1.5, for instance. You know, rainfall is only one of the influences on flooding. Uh, uh, you know, there are you know, fact, you know, factors like land, you know, land use in catchments. Uh, uh, the existence or otherwise of dams and uh, that sort of thing, which are important, and then you have a whole you have a whole additional layer of what the impacts of that flooding are, and that, you know, it gets back to you know, what you, you know uh, what uh, people and what land uses you have in vulnerable areas. So floodings, uh, uh, flooding and flood impacts is about a lot more than just rainfall, but the rainfall component of it. Uh, uh, you know, we have pretty clear expectations with uh, you know, a warmer atmosphere being capable of holding more moisture, all other things being equal. And that was Blair Truham from the Bureau of Meteorology speaking to our weather reporter, Kate Doyle. Now, a Tasmanian salmon producer is breeding more heat-tolerant fish to cope with rising water temperatures. Around 60,000 fish died earlier this year at Petuna Aquaculture's Rowella Farm when temperatures in the Tamer River became dangerously high. Head of the company's breeding program, Zoe Nyoi, told Erin Cooper they're compiling a genetic bank to breed fish that will cope better. We're doing um, cryopreserved milt, so we are currently in the process of building up a sperm bank. So this sperm bank is to preserve the best genetics of um, tuna fish and also an insurance policy, so if anything happens to our stock, uh, to our brood stock one year, we can actually go back to the milk bank so that oh, we're not losing the entire stock for the year. So it's a, it's a really great insurance policy. So what does that actually look like? You know, How do you get fish sperm and essentially freeze it and preserve it? So um, we actually um, work with a company, Cryogenetics, um, from Canada. So it's like the little square packs. They call it the square packs. So we process the milk and we mix it up with what they call cryo-X. And so it's a cryoprotectant. It protects the milk one, and then we put it into liquid nitrogen and it freezes them. So, and we keep it in the liquid nitrogen tank and it can be stored as long as the tank is filled up with the liquid nitrogen. And it has to be checked monthly actually because it does, it does evaporate. And every time we need to use it, we just go back in and just thaw it in warm water and we can just use it. How long has this project been happening? Do you have much of a bank built up as yet? So right now we have, uh, we started it in um, last year 
it actually was the first time. It was delayed because of COVID. They couldn't come in uh, uh, from Canada to do it. So when we did it, we had to do it by ourselves the first time. So they were just um, uh, monitoring us online, giving us some um, instructions. And this year, they actually um, get to come here and, and do it with us. So we do have um, enough milk in our sperm bank currently to fertilize um, 3.8 million eggs. And You've got 3.8 million eggs worth of sperm in a bank. Yeah. And it's only <laughs> going to go up. Yeah, so uh, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing like to actually preserve. You can also um, cross year classes. So it's not just fish from born in 2021, like cross with 21. So we can cross even fish born in you know, 2018, 2019, just, case, ju- just to maintain that um, biodiversity in our stock because we want to reduce inbreeding so that they don't, they don't get wiped out by diseases. And obviously that's very deep in there, the sort of fish science of it all. But for the end consumer who's buying salmon and trout in the stores, you know, why is having something like this going to be helpful for them? Basically, what um, the main focus of our breeding program is actually actually thermal tolerance so as you know like um, the water temperatures are actually going up every year and Tasmanian salmon is unique in the sense um, worldwide because they can tolerate temperatures up to 20 21 degrees which is unimaginable in in Norway or up in the northern hemisphere what we're doing right now is just ensure that our fish can survive in this harsh temperatures what we call it you know trying to breed climate proof fish and also ensuring that there's a constant supply of fish to the general public. We were talking about the fact that these salmon are quite unique in that they can withstand much higher temperatures. I mean, what does that do for their welfare, though? Are they just as happy as fish in much lower temperatures? If you have fish that is, they are able to survive in higher temperatures, you know, you're, you're lowering the mortality rate. Um, in the population and it's just so they're generally going to be happier swimming in warmer temperatures because we don't have control over water temperatures but we can control um, what kind of fish that we do put in those conditions. And that was Zoe Nyoi from Petuna Aquaculture talking to Erin Cooper. The ABC Giving Tree for 2022 has been raised. As you've heard, cost of living expenses will make it tough for some people to show joy to loved ones this year. So it's even more important to help our fellow Tasmanians out. Donate online now at abc.net.au forward slash giving tree. This helps people doing it tough make their own choices on what they gift their loved ones. It's Lucy Braden from ABC Radio Hobart Drive. Please donate now at abc.net.au forward slash giving tree. Keeping you updated every day. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Fiona Breen. Now this cooler wet weather recently probably doesn't trigger you to remember to put on a hat and sunscreen. But if you are working outside on the farm, you do need to cover up. It's National Skin Cancer Action Week. And farmers are being reminded that they are one of the industries most at risk. National Centre for Farmer Health's AgriSafe clinician, uh, Mona Simmons, says it's a habit many still need to get into. Look, I think there's a bit of variability. Some are quite motivated to be doing the right thing, what they know is the right thing. Most farmers know what they should be doing, but there are quite a few farmers still who probably really haven't set that habit. They they don't trigger a pattern in their life to um, do the slip, slop, slap, shade routine, which, you know, they've learnt from childhood. 
So it is variable. And I think if they had had an experience with someone in their family who's had a, a brush with skin cancer, then their awareness heightens dramatically and quite quickly. Is there also that getting into that habit of going and getting checks as well? Again, I think that's perhaps not routine for a lot of farmers. When I see farmers and look at their overall health with them, we frequently recommend that. Um, some are doing it on a regular annual basis, which really they probably should be doing as part of an annual check, given that they're outdoors a lot and for extensive periods of time. If they've got a family history, often they're more likely to do that. But, yeah, we prompting to do that regular checking, with, checking in with their GP is really important. But as well as that, with their optometrist is really important as well because uh, UV exposure can actually increase the rate of quite a few eye conditions. So um, the, the sunglasses thing is a really good form of PPE to use as well. Um, and even if you are using all the correct PPE and you're doing things well, there's a, there's a range of conditions that... Uh, can develop in your eyes, so um, a regular check with your optometry, not just to see how see how well you see, um, but about overall eye health. Do you think these habits then, you know, they might get into a habit of it happening at work and they're, they're getting their sunscreen on and things like that. Are you finding that maybe those habits then don't flow into relaxation and, and you know, time at the beach and, and uh, you know, after harvest when they're uh, heading off on holiday? Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Um, People just want to get away and have a bit of a break, so perhaps their routines aren't quite as in, ingrained in those settings, and historically that they may not have thought about looking after their skin so much. But most farmers can remember quite vividly childhood burns, but when you think about how they're doing their sun protection on the farm as a routine, if you're in a different environment, it might not carry over. And the other thing to do is model that behaviour for your children because it's a whole family safety issue. You really look after, need to look after your health and the family of, of the, all of those working on the farm. Uh, quite a few years ago, farmers were sort of seen as the industry that was most at risk of, of skin cancers. Do you think that is still the case? My understanding is that's still the case. It used to be that um, they had a 60% higher rate of developing skin cancer. And, uh, look, I think that's probably pretty similar. The highest rates are really in Australia and New Zealand. We've got the highest incident and mortality in the world and um, your risks of um, getting skin cancer before the age of 75 are, I think it's 1 in 24 if you're male and 1 in 34 if you're female. You're 5 to 10 times more likely to experience uh, radiation than indoor workers. So um, apparently 1,200 die a year, almost totally preventable. Mona, obviously with all this uh, weather that we're seeing right across the country at the moment, sunscreen is probably the last thing that a lot of people are thinking of when it is uh, cold and wet. But why is it important to still be making sure to, to slip, slop, slap and all the, all the rest? Okay, well, uh, in Hamilton today, uh, if you look at the SunSmart app, which is a fantastic tool, it actually, even though it's quite cloudy and it's been drizzly most of the day today, uh, between 10.50 and 2 o'clock, it's recommended that you wear sunscreen. And in fact, when I first looked this morning, it said between those times, but I've noticed just at the moment that the UV rating is 10. In Adelaide, it's 11, and in Lee Creek, it's 12. So the UV rating varies according to where you are, but 
just because it's cloudy doesn't mean that there's no UV rating. And any UV rating three and above, you, you should be protecting yourself and putting on that sunscreen. Just finally, what would be your number one advice that you, you want to get across to farmers or that you say to farmers when you see them at your checkups? I think they often complain that it's a nuisance to put on sunscreen. They say it's inconvenient. They say it's greasy. They look for excuses because it's, it, it, it doesn't suit them. But I encourage them, they're, they're independent people. They look after their sheep all the time. They seek, they make sure that they've got shade for their animals. They make sure that they've got water for their animals. They need to look after themselves and their health as well as their stock. So setting habits about brushing your teeth, checking that you've got your hat, getting your sunscreen on and making sure it's on every two hours. Try and get into the habit of that because it's a lifetime patterns that really are cumulative that can really create some problems later in life. Interesting, something to think about. And I had a look at it, just a couple of random spots around Tasmania and Oatlands at the moment is 10.6, which is considered very high. And Bernie is 9.1, which is also considered very high. So I hope you've got your hats on uh, and you've got some uh, sunscreen on as well. Now, people living with disabilities outside Australian cities struggle with services and visibility. Kempsey woman Josie Clark has started an online community to bring these stories to a larger audience and shine a light on the contribution people with disabilities can have in the agriculture, agricultural sector. Landline's Helena Bashkowski spoke with Josie and her dad, Glenn Clark. I remember getting woken up in the middle of the night to go to Sydney, which was very strange, and, yeah, going to visit Dad in the hospital. And I guess, you know, you don't really recognise at the time that you, as a five-year-old kid, you were maybe saying goodbye to your dad. So, yeah, that was um, hard. Glenn's prognosis was still heartbreaking. My first memory of it was waking up and looking out the window and, seeing Sydney Harbour Bridge and wondering where I was. And, um, yeah, then the news was given to us that, yeah, probably never walk again. I was 41 at the time, so, yeah, never had a sick day. Sorry. Never had a sick day in my life, and, um, yeah, we were just busy with four kids and pony club and work and everything else. Health is the last thing you think of. Josie, the youngest of the four, saw how determined her father was to get back to farming. Two years ago, she asked him a simple question that would transform her life and possibly the lives of Australians with a disability living in rural areas. It just came from a conversation we're having in the paddock. One day she said, oh, you know, is there a support network or, you know, anything like that where you can share thoughts and ideas? And I said, well, no, not really. So she started one launching Ability Agriculture on Facebook and Instagram. For me, it was just sunny to share the incredible stories of people working in agriculture with disability because there are incredible people working in our industry with disability and it's something we don't talk about. And I think there's so much power in just starting a conversation. Nigel Corish's story is just one of many Josie has shared. She's quite incredible. Born with cerebral palsy, Nigel grew up on a broad acre farm near the Queensland border town of Gundawindi. The way I viewed it is that um, I didn't know any different, um, so I was just a normal kid uh, growing up. It wasn't until I probably got to my teenage years where I started to 
fall behind at sport and just couldn't keep up uh, physically with my friends. And that was the first time I realised that uh, I had disability and it was going to affect me for the rest of my life. And one of the difficulties being disabled on the farm is uh, using a grease gun to uh, grease the grease nipples and the bearings of the machine. So the worst thing you can do is get frustrated, get angry, and suddenly you can't do it at all. So just staying calm, staying patient, and just taking that extra longer bit to do it. And this is a great example of if you are disabled and need help doing it, is uh, putting up your hand and getting someone to help you. And, um, that was something I was not very good at, particularly growing up. And as a young person, I'd spend, you know, I could have spent two hours down a paddock just trying to adjust something small that someone with two hands could do in five minutes. But I was that uh, stubborn and arrogant that I wanted to do it myself. Technology has improved life and work for rural people living with a disability. For Nigel and Glenn, machinery and vehicle modifications have given them independence and freedom and kept them on the farm. The car I got's a dual cab ute, automatic, and it's been modified for me to give me independence, which is a huge thing See you boys. for me. So it's just had the hand controls adapted, like they're fitted by an engineer in Sydney. So, yeah, I can get in that and throw my chair in the back. And when the kids were younger, you soccer and all that sort of thing, Friday night, good, the fun stuff. And, um, yeah, with that gator there, well, I'd be lost without it. Like, it's just been modified um, with hand controls in it. And, yeah, I can just, I can still contribute to the farm in any way that I I possibly can. The tractor pretty much drives itself in the paddock with GPS and I can solely focus on the control panel with my one hand and pretty well uh, do it quite easily. So uh, technology's come a long way in agriculture to basically allow uh, disability people to uh, drive the tractors. People with disability who are deciding whether or not to stay involved in agriculture or even to stay in a rural area, Josie encourages them to check out the Ability Agricultural social pages and take advice from the stories. I think Nigel said it best when he said, for a long time I felt like I was different and that he didn't really apply for things and he said, just, just give it a go. He's like, the worst thing that someone can say is no, but the alternative is so much better. Are you feeling better now? Or? Don't discount someone because they have a disability. I think you'll find that they'll give you their heart and soul over everyone else. And that was Glenn Clark ending Helena Bachkovsky's story. And watch the full story on Landline this Sunday at 12.30 or anytime on ABC iView. And if you get a chance, make sure you hop on to our ABC Rural Online page. There's a few great stories there. More about future-proofing the wine industry with plans to store those varieties of grapes in the labs. We've got the story about Petuna... Uh, working on helping their fish acclimatise and a few other bits and pieces, something on the Prosecco industry as well. Make sure you uh, join us again tomorrow. It's pretty exciting to have world champion next to my name. Still can't get over that. I don't think Greg Norman cares that much about whether or not the Saudis can sports wash their brand. It's a daily sports conversation and it's called ABC Sport Daily. Find us on the ABC Listen app.